Amen. Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. As we continue our study in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we've arrived now at chapter 6, verse 12. Does God want us to enjoy the pleasures of the body? Yes or no? Or yes and no? Well, it depends, doesn't it? Tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul speaks of the goodness of our bodies and the pleasures of food and sex. He does so because they're good gifts from God and he wants us to enjoy them in the way they are designed to be enjoyed, to the glory of God. It's important for us to be discreet when the Bible is discreet and direct when the Bible is direct about the enemies, intimacies and pleasures of the marital union. The Bible has much to say, but as in the Song of Solomon, its descriptions are veiled and treasured in romantic poetry, but about the fact of sex and its attraction and its power and its purposes and its limits, the Bible is direct and at times very frank. This is one of those passages. We need not blush at what God created good. The marriage bed is honorable. And we ought to, be, ought to aim to be as direct as the Bible is direct, but not more explicit than it. Obviously, there's an age appropriateness to all of this and the depth of our discussions. There might be much more said privately than in public. I want to invite those discussions. If the people of God reading the book of God can't talk about the gifts of God, then we're too pious or too prudish for our own good. God thinks we need to talk about this. And so we turn to his word, chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. Let me invite you to consider the, the authoritative, inerrant, inspired word of God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee. From sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know 
that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Amen. This is God's word. He write it in our hearts. Let's ask him to. Father, we need you tonight. We pray you'd have mercy on us. Bless us. Teach us your word. Help us, we pray, to walk in your ways. Good shepherd, draw near. And glorify and honor yourself, we pray. Grant that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. God thinks food is wonderful. When he wants us to know what salvation is like, the prophet Isaiah says, uh, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. You see what he says? Salvation is like a free meal at the best restaurant with the best ingredients. Just take and eat. Now, it may seem like a cruel joke to study this passage on the night the kitchen is now full of food that yet awaits us. Not all things are helpful. Uh, it, It would be, I think, a cruel joke if Paul's point was really about food. But it's really not. It's really about sex. He begins with food because the Corinthians related their use of food to their use of sex. They said the way we enjoy one is the way we enjoy the other. Paul says not so fast. Not for Christians. We should not think this way, he says. A different analogy uh, might be this. Roller coasters are like food. (laughs) Sorry if I've already lost you. They're good fun. Sorry if you hate them. There are wood coasters and metal coasters. There are coasters with easy turns for kids and seniors. Then there are coasters with loops and corkscrews, and they can give you heartburn. You can try them all. You can enjoy them once or a thousand times. You can prefer whichever you like. Like food, when in working order, they're all safe. No police patrol roller coasters. They're all lawful. Have at it. But you can't say the same about riding in a car. Meandering through a quiet neighborhood in springtime with the windows down can be very enjoyable, no doubt. So can flying down the highway at midnight with the music blaring. But what you can't do, must not do, is ignore the other drivers, ignore the stop signs, weave all over the road, drive the wrong way down a one-way street. No, that's dangerous. And cars and their passengers aren't designed to go that way. We're not safe like that. It might seem like the same thing to sit in a roller coaster seat as a car's passenger seat. But they are, in fact, two very different things. Roller coasters run on tracks. They can be thrilling, but they get you safely from point A to point B, like food. But cars aren't like that. They can run wild, like sex. And like it, they can be destructive and deadly. 
That's why you need maturity to drive a car. So Paul starts with food and moves to sex because the Corinthians said, well, you know, it's all the same stuff. It's all the same thing. Paul's goal is different. It's to see how they're different so that we'll flee immorality and aim to glorify God with our bodies. Now, one last thing before we walk through the text. Um, Paul engages with them about this subject because he knows that our beliefs shape our behavior. That what we think about something influences what we do with something. One of the ways we fight sin is to reprogram our brains to think rightly about things, to think the way that God thinks about things. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Paul says in Romans 12.1. It's not the only strategy for dealing with this subject. We also need the Lord's help by the Spirit to put sin to death. We need more than that. We, we need to have a discussion about this sometime. But you'll never even attempt to do that if you aren't convinced it needs to be done. You can't be convinced you must until you know what your body is for and what it's not for. And so he gives four, at least, compelling arguments designed to help us glorify God with our body. And I want to highlight those four with us, with you. And the first one is in verses 12 through 14. And he says, our body is important to Jesus and he cares about us. And he begins with food. He begins with food. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now, you may say already, well, what does God care about food, really? I mean, doesn't he have more important things to to worry about? Run the universe, build the church. Uh, Why so interested in something so common and mundane as what I chew and swallow? But think of it this way. The fact that he does care tells you he cares about everything. He cares about everything about you. They had a catchphrase, all things are lawful for me. It's in quotations in most of your translations. Those are their words is what the translators are trying to help you see. Their words, all things are lawful for me. It's the kind of argument they're using to defend, frankly, their continued use of prostitutes. He gets to that later, but that's the idea. Following their quotation, you see the phrase, but not all things are helpful. That's Paul's response back at them. It's possible they got the phrase, all things are lawful for me, from Paul himself. You can hear Paul saying, all things are lawful for me, when he taught on food, for instance. I mean, the old Jewish food laws are done away with. Jesus said, you know, all foods are clean. You want bacon? Eat bacon. You want shrimp? Eat shrimp. You want bacon-wrapped shrimp? All the better. You want to dredge it in butter before it goes in your mouth? Have at it, the Bible says. All things are lawful for me. You can hear Paul saying that with regard to food. The Corinthians, however, thought of sex exactly like the way they, they thought of food. Any and every variety is fine. It's okay to eat any food because the stomach is hungry. It's okay to gratify my lust because the body is hungry. And Paul says, nope, there are restrictions. 
The first, he says, is this. Not all things are helpful or beneficial. You know, eating a, as we contemplate Easter, if you do, eating a dozen Cadbury gooey chocolate cream eggs. Do you know what I'm talking about? Those ones that are super sweet chocolate on the outside with this gooey, super, super sweet goo in the middle. You know, eating a dozen in one helping is not going to be helpful to you. My friend and I agree, once a year is enough, but, but one once a year is glorious. Now, maybe that doesn't relate. Some of you teenagers know that a gallon of milk drunk in an hour, the gallon challenge, they call it, is not beneficial. It never ends well. An apple a day may keep the doctor away, sure, but a dessert after every meal may not. A few years ago, visit to my physician, he and I agreed that, yes, I, I could no longer eat anything I wanted whenever I wanted as much as I wanted, like I did the first 40 years of life. No, I should probably act my age, he agreed. Again, all things are lawful. Paul says, however, they're not, all benef- they're not all helpful or beneficial. But then he goes on to say, and they're not, or he says, and I will not be enslaved. That's his next rebuttal to them. I am meant to rule over my food and not have it rule over me. Master your food or it will master you, just like your money. Master alcohol and tobacco or it will master you, as some in this room could testify. Paul says, I will not be enslaved. And then he gives another phrase. Notice it, chapter 6, verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy both one and the other. What's he saying? Well, you know, some people eat to live and some people live to eat. For us, the Corinthians said, every day is a feast day. The quotation may actually continue through, and God will destroy both one and the other, in which case that's their statement, which only uh, increases the idea that, hey, have at it. I mean, one day you're not going to have a stomach, one day you're not going to have food. It's all going to be gone. It's going to be buried in a grave. I say that that may be the full quotation simply because in the Greek, Greek doesn't have quotation marks. And actually figuring out what he's quoting them saying And what he's saying back to them is is a matter mostly of context and other texts in the Bible. So they may have been saying, you know, food doesn't last and nor does the stomach. It's going to go. So indulge every appetite now. If you're hungry, eat. If you're thirsty, drink. If you're tired, sleep. If you're aroused, satisfy your lust. And Paul says, no. The case of the body is not like the case of the stomach. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. But it is not true that the body is for sexual immorality. It's not true that all our appetites are the same and may be indulged harmlessly. No, that's not true, he says. The body is for the Lord, end of verse 13. And the Lord for the body. And the Lord determines the body's purpose. The Lord is the Lord of the body. God doesn't just care about your stomach. He cares about your whole body in service to him. 
How interested is Jesus in the body? Well, you know that he lived in one. He suffered in one. He died and was buried in one. And he was raised in one such that the dust of the earth sits enthroned on the universe universe's throne. He is forever and for always from now on in a human resurrected body. He loves the body. It was his idea. And he will raise our bodies, Paul says, verse 14, by his power just as his own was raised. He will give it newness of life, fullness of strength, and an eternity of time. A better body awaits you. A more permanent body awaits you. Your body is going to be raised. And if it's going to be raised, it is everlastingly important. And you cannot say what really matters is what goes on with my soul. And it doesn't really matter what I do with my body. The Corinthians said, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. And the end of both is destruction. And Paul says, the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. And the end of both is resurrection. So it's important. So don't fear your body. Don't hate your body. Don't mistreat your body because Jesus cares about it. And so should we. That's the first point. The second argument is this, to help us glorify God with our bodies and flee immorality in verses 15 to 18. He says our body is united to Jesus, and Jesus is one with us, even in the body. Notice the language at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He is, Jesus is saying, Paul, Paul is saying about Jesus, Jesus has united himself to us not just in soul, but in body. Now that may be really strange. It may be a new idea to some of us. It's what, though, Paul says here. Just as a historical side note, the fact that Jesus remains united to our bodies even after our soul has departed them has meant throughout the history of Christianity a great deal of respect and dignity shown to the body of those who have departed in soul. That's part of the reason we give dignity to it. And among Christians, all the more, Jesus remains united to our body, and one day he's going to raise it with resurrected power. Now Paul pushes the point then by asking at uh, verse, middle of verse 15, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members, he says, of a prostitute? This is more common than we think. In Corinth, it was a very real temptation. I mean, we know that the city uh, sat below the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And the way the Greeks and the Romans in that day worshipped their gods included going to temple and purchasing the use of a temple prostitute. The thought was union with the deity accomplished by union with the servant of the deity. No doubt many in that day said, well, Monday I'll worship Aphrodite. And Tuesday, I'll worship Apollos. And Wednesday, I'll worship Zeus. That should keep us in this room from being shocked to know some of us in this room lived promiscuously like this and are still tempted to this. 
But instead of going to the temple, we simply click links on the internet. And it should remind us that the Christians in Corinth were called to be different. Paul's thinking isn't, well, you know, when you're in Corinth, do as the Corinthians. Oh, are you from there? Well, then you get a free pass. Instead, he says, be shaped by God's truth. Think it through, he says. Think it through. Shall I take the body that's united to Jesus and united to a prostitute? Never, he says. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? You see what he's saying? He's saying there's no such thing as casual sex. Sex is not without meaning. Sex is never without consequences. For it is written, he goes on to say, the two shall become one flesh. Now, Paul has done an amazing thing. He's taken God's word in Genesis about marriage that Jesus reiterates, the two shall become one flesh. And he says that applies to a married couple, of course. It also applies to a man who sleeps around. The two become one. Don't you realize that's what happens? We may intend for it to be a brief or meaningless throwaway relationship, but Paul says we are joining ourselves. We're being glued together, he says. And then he goes on in verse 17 to say, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And I think just so no one misunderstands, Paul is emphasizing this. Our union with Jesus is spiritual and not sensual. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is in him and in us and makes us one with him. Shall I then rip away what's united to Jesus, is the logic, and unite it in immorality? Shall I take the parts of my body and throw them around indiscriminately? No, says Paul. I must not. And if I have been, says Paul, I must stop. I'm united to Jesus. I cannot go on like this, he says. Therefore, flee sexual immorality, he tells these believers. Flee. Don't, stand, don't try to stand and fight it, but run. Like Joseph in Potiphar's house, you remember this story when she tried to seduce him? And he got up and he fled the house. It's, not, it's, it's a sin we must fight, but we don't fight by standing our ground and pretending we are immune to the allure. We admit, instead, that we are attracted to the allure and that it's dangerous. Maybe you just have to get out of the house. Maybe you have to get out in public on your dates. Maybe you have to put safe eyes or covenant eyes, I recommend both, on your computer. Maybe you have to call a friend at midnight and pray and talk until temptation is gone. But Paul says whatever you have to do, make it your aim to flee and keep on fleeing immorality. Flee what? Well, not just prostitution. I know some of you are saying, this, this has just never been an issue for me. But Paul isn't just talking about prostitution here. He's talking about every kind of gratification outside of marriage. That's the meaning of the term he employs, porneia, from which we get the word pornography, but it doesn't just refer to pictures. It refers to anything outside of marriage. 
If somebody tells you the Bible says nowhere in the Bible does it say that single people can't have sex or that premarital sex is wrong, well, they're wrong. It does. They didn't use the words premarital sex because that's not the way they talked in that day. They used these words, porneia. Porneia for singles is fornication. Porneia for those who are married is adultery. Porneia in your family is incest. Porneia with one of your own gender is homosexuality or lesbianism. Flee, Paul says, flee out of loyalty to Jesus who bound himself to you and you to him. So the first thing... The argument he makes is this, our body is important to Jesus. He cares about us. The second is our body is united to Jesus. He's one with us. The third argument he makes is in verse 18 through the beginning of verse 19. Our body, he says, is a temple of the Holy Spirit and he lives in us. Notice the language of verse 18. It actually starts this way. Flee from sexual immorality for every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person Sins against his own body. What does that mean? A lot of ink has been spilled here trying to figure that out. Actually, most of your translations have added the word other when it says every other sin is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against their own body because the word other isn't even there in the original. But the idea that they're getting at and translating it that way is this. That sexual immorality is a sin against the body, and it's the only one specifically directly against the body. It's unlike others. But then what do we say about drunkenness and gluttony and other kinds of sins? Well, we might say this. They are sins against the body, sure, but not in the same way. With other sins, it's not that I drink, but that I get drunk. It's not that I eat, but that I eat to excess. But every time and any time a person joins with a prostitute, they're one with her. Sexual immorality is a sin against the body every time. One commentator uses the analogy of having a nice car. And he talks about how one might commit all sorts of sins with the car, driving recklessly, speeding, illegal parking. But this writer says if we were to go out and get a load of cow manure and dump it into the back seat. We would not be sinning with the car, but against the car. That's what Paul is getting at. Sexual sin is something, it it does something to you. You sin against yourself, he says. And as Calvin says, it is a stain unlike any other. And it introduces a disintegration into our personhood and relationships that leaves us forever changed and affected until glory. It's not beyond redemption. It's not beyond forgiveness. It's not beyond being cleansed by Jesus and healed by Jesus. But there is something about it, friends. Something that's so serious that for many, maybe most, possibly all, it remains, it lingers in some way, in a way that, that hurts and harms, even after redemption. Until glory itself. So don't sin this way because the body, he says, is what? It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, or do you not know 
that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Every Christian is a temple. We're the inner shrine, the sanctuary where the deity lives. To sin this way against our body is therefore, of course, to sin against not only ourselves, but God himself who lives in us. So ask yourself this question. If I was going into a building where God actually lived, the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament before Jesus came, would I do this thing? Would I fantasize this way? No? Then I shouldn't do this or fantasize this at all because I am the building in which God lives, says the Apostle Paul. And whatever I do, Jesus is right there with me. Whatever I look at, Jesus is right there with me. Whatever I touch, Jesus is right there with me. He lives in me by his spirit, says the apostle. Now look, that's all one thing to say and it's another thing to live. I get that. But what's so encouraging then about this passage, about the presence of the Holy Spirit, is not only that the Spirit is a reason for us to obey... But he's a help to our obedience. As the godly minister John Stott, who himself was a single man, once said, It is no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. And it's no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus could do it. I can't, but if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like that. And if the spirit of Jesus could live in me, then I could live a life like that. This, says Stott, is the secret of Christian sanctity. It is not that we should strive To live like Jesus. But that he, by his spirit, should come and live in us. To have him as our example is not enough. We need him in us as our savior. So our body, Paul says, is a temple of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus who lives in us. And finally, the fourth compelling reason to flee immorality and glorify God with our body is this. And end of verse 19 and verse 20. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Here's the fourth reason. Our body was purchased by Jesus and he owns it. You were bought and paid for, says the Apostle Paul. Now, in language just prior that talks about prostitution, speaking to a culture of Corinthians that, that regularly engaged in prostitution, this is not a delicate way of putting it. But the Corinthians were not delicate people. The Corinthians were acting as if their life was theirs alone. And Paul says, it's not your life, it's not your body, it's Christ's body He created it, he bought it, he died for it, he owns it. You'll hear all kinds of arguments made all the time 
all too frequently by professing Christians who will say things like certain actions are acceptable because maybe they actually believe in direct contradiction to scripture that their bodies are their own and that no one has any right to tell them what to do with their body. And the Apostle Paul says that simply is not true. You didn't make yourself. You didn't redeem yourself. Jesus owns you, even your body. He did something for you on the cross, Paul says. He paid a debt you couldn't pay. He went to the slave market and he purchased your freedom. He brought you out of slavery to sin and into service to the Savior. And it cost him. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And you don't belong to you. Dear Christian, you belong to him. So we're important to Jesus. He cares for us. We're united to Jesus. He's one with us. We're indwelt by Jesus. He lives in us. And we're purchased by Jesus. He owns us. Therefore, Paul says, glorify God in your body. Now, let me close by saying this number of a couple of things. In a pastoral ethics class in seminary, a professor taught his future pastors the true story of a married minister who had imagined the perfect woman for himself, not his wife. He had this active fantasy of all that she was and looked like, down to specific details and how great it would be to be with her. She was all in his imagination until one day she showed up at church. She fit the description perfectly. He dropped by her place unannounced for a pastoral visit. He knocked on the door, she opened it. He started to talk about visiting her, thanking her for coming. And she said to him, I know why you are here. And she opened the door and he went in and they began an affair. And that affair went on for weeks and weeks. And just at the moment when they had agreed together, he would go home and tell his wife that he was leaving her and his kids that he was abandoning them. He was going to live with her. Just at that moment, on the day he went home and told his wife and his family, he went back to her place. And where was she? Gone. Completely disappeared. Never seen from again. But he ruined his family. And he ruined his marriage. And he ruined his ministry. And he ruined his soul because of what he wished for. And it came true. We must not, dear friends, go down a path outside of marriage for the satisfaction of our desires in this way. And if you're single and you know that you cannot control yourself, then you have got to find a spouse. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. And let those who are married cling to one another. Get drunk on the love of your spouse, says the book of Proverbs and Song of Solomon too. With enough regularity, frequency, that temptation is limited and unappealing. But now I'm preaching chapter 7, and that waits for after Easter. What do we do, dear friends, if we have, have not fled immorality, but indulged in it, perhaps again and again? 
this passage ought to be extremely encouraging to us. Paul has to tell the Corinthians these things because some of them have not yet understood properly. They've not yet turned away and he's helping them to turn away. And he's arming them with reasons to turn away, which means it's not too late for them. Though they had sinned, Jesus wouldn't throw them away. Jesus would clean them up and he would help them by compelling argument, by his spirit living in them, and by a, by a whole variety of other helpful gospel tools, which maybe we need to talk about. He would help them flee. So Paul says, flee to Jesus to be washed so the filth is rinsed away. And flee to Jesus to help you flee immorality in order to glorify God in your body because you belong to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for Jesus. Thank you. He's a friend of sinners. We need him. We are weak. He is strong. We have fallen. Pick us up. Pick us up again and again. Wash us. Grant that we would not be like a pig returning always to its its filth or a dog to its vomit. But grant that more and more by your power and your help, we would put sin to death. We would say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Grant it. Help us. We need you. We can't do this on our own. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.